0: Welcome to Disputes Digest for the week of April 18th, 2022. I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the international dispute resolution field. And if you haven't already, take a moment to share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got any feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And you already know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review. It helps others find the show. All right, let's get into it. First up, we start with a piece of news related to the war in Ukraine and the Ukrainian Arbitration Association issues an urgent call for action to prevent further genocide to Ukrainians. On its website, the organization has posted a call for action asking for members of the arbitration community to act, quote, to prevent further genocide of Ukrainians by Russia, end quote. The organizers go on to say that the international community must take immediate and effective action to stop Russia's barbarity. They urge our foreign colleagues to join the call and to require that their governments act immediately." End quote. The posting leads to a Google form where members can add their names to a list of roster to support the calls for peace and to sign up for further information from the organization. Additionally, we'll post some links in the show notes for how you can engage with other activities by members of the legal community and international dispute space to support the people of Ukraine. From there, let's head over to China, where last month, the Guangzhou Intermediate People's Court rendered two rulings, whereby the Guangzhou Court granted partial recognition and enforcement of two commercial judgments rendered by a U.S. court based on the principle of reciprocity. However, the Guangzhou court refused to enforce punitive damages that were ordered by the U.S. court as incongruent with Chinese law. At the heart of the case was Ms. Fang Zheng, one of the co-defendants related to investment immigration disputes. The U.S. District Court seated in Central California ruled against Ms. Zeng and the other co-defendants, to which Ms. Zeng challenged enforcement in Guangzhou, advancing a handful of arguments. First, that the rulings of the U.S. Court violated basic principles of Chinese law and public interest, and in particular, Chinese contract law. Second, that procedurally speaking, the plaintiffs were required to seek enforcement in California instead of immediate enforcement in China. Third, that the U.S. court did not have jurisdiction over Ms. Zeng because she was a Chinese citizen residing outside of the U.S. And finally, both that Ms. Zeng was not properly served with process and that because the U.S. court's ruling was pursuant to a default judgment, such a judgment was void as against Chinese law and public policy. Unfortunately for the defendants, the court did not buy any of these arguments, making several important rulings. The court held that because there was no explicit treaty obligation between their two nations that the parties generally would apply the decisions of their respective courts based on the principle of reciprocity and that as a matter of procedure that the defendants had been served and that there was no obligation that the plaintiff exhaust all their home jurisdiction's options before seeking enforcement in China. The final takeaway from this case is that while Chinese courts may remain steadfast in rejecting punitive damages from foreign jurisdictions, generally speaking, and unless there is an explicit or formal rule to the contrary, they will enforce the orders of foreign courts within the parameters of reciprocal judicial deference. Then, let's hop across the globe to The Hague where judges at the International Court of Justice, ICJ, ruled on Thursday that Colombia must immediately cease patrolling and trying to control fishing in parts of the Caribbean that the ICJ said are within Nicaragua's exclusive economic zone. The ICJ ruled that Colombian activities in the zone, including giving out fishing rights and interfering with maritime research, violated Nicaragua's sovereign rights. In 2012, the World Court handed down a judgment that reduced the expansive sea belonging to Colombia and simultaneously increased Nicaragua's continental shelf and economic exclusion zone in the Caribbean, giving it access to underwater oil and gas deposits, as well as fishing rights in those waters. Colombia representatives said that they did not see it as a victory for Nicaragua because not all of the requests had been granted by the court and they were quote satisfied with the court's ruling. Lawyers for Nicaragua did not comment following the ruling and we'll include a link with further details in the show notes. And again, keeping with our globetrotting ways this episode, this time let's stop in Australia where a federal court decided on whether to recognize an or enforce an award that it had already been satisfied. Australian courts continued to take an arbitration-friendly approach to applications to recognize or enforce foreign awards. In the case EBJ21 versus EB021, the court considered recognition of the arbitral award. The parties had entered into a confidential deed settlement with payment due within one month. However, immediately prior to the date of payment, the applicant applied to the FCA to enforce the award sum. The respondent, who had paid the award some before the deadline, claimed that there was no entitlement to enforcement of an award that had already been satisfied. The applicants relied on Article 36 of the Uncentral Model Law, which enumerates limited exceptions to enforcement of an arbitral award, which does not include prior payment. Ultimately, the court distinguished between enforcement and recognition of an award with reference to Article 35 of the model law, confirming that while enforcement can only occur on application to a competent court, most awards are recognized at law as binding between the parties from the date of award and it is therefore unnecessary for the court to make any award for the agreed award to be recognized. And finally, we will end our walk through the news this week in the United States as the Ninth Circuit provides guidance regarding online contract formation. In a recent decision upholding the denial of a motion to compel arbitration, a panel on the Ninth Circuit provided new guidance about the formation of online contracts under California and New York law. The court held that to place a consumer on inquiry notice of terms and conditions on a website that the website must provide a quote, reasonably conspicuous notice of the terms and the consumer must quote unambiguously manifest end quote acceptance of those terms in the course of this analysis the court provided several examples berman follows on the heels of a recent california state appellate court decision sellers v just answers that similarly concluded that the company had failed to provide sufficiently conspicuous notice to its terms Businesses that seek to enter into online contracts with consumers in California and New York, especially when their terms include arbitration agreements with class waivers, should consider reviewing their current website flows in light of these decisions. Ultimately, the decision by the court does not break new ground or establish fundamental standards different than the courts of California or New York, have previously applied, but it does offer guidance about particular methods of contract formation that businesses should review and consider when implementing their own online terms and conditions, especially when they include arbitration agreements that call for individualized arbitration rather than class actions. At a minimum, Berman gives companies tools they can use to increase the likelihood of enforcing online terms and conditions. We'll include a link in the show notes, but this is an interesting decision for sure, and some practical real-life impacts. That's it for the news this week, but hang on for just a second as we have a couple of notes before we get out of here for the week. First, my sincere apologies for the less-than-perfect upload record the last couple of weeks. We are working with some really interesting content on some really cool projects and finishing up the start of season four. So please bear with me. It will be worth it. I promise. And well, speaking of season four, y'all ready? Season four drops in exactly one month, May 19th. So mark your calendars. I can't wait to share with you who we have booked on the show this season. You won't want to miss it. Anyway, that's it for the speech Digest. We're glad to be back, and we look forward to seeing you next week for more news from around the International Dispute Resolution legal and business world. If you have feedback or comments for the show, drop us a line at TalesOfTheTribunal at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Disputes Digest. Bye. Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.